Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. We're fortunate to have two guests on our show today. The first is Ken Blanchard. You might know him from The One Minute Manager or one of the other dozens of books he's written. Joining Ken is his colleague, Randy Conley, who is the Vice President of Client Services and Trust Practice Leader at the Ken Blanchard Companies. In our interview, we discuss their book, Simple Truths of Leadership, with a focus on servant leadership and how great leaders build trust among their people. 12 Geniuses is brought to you in part by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is a B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. Reach out at thestarconspiracy.com for more information or to schedule a chat with the team. That's the star with two R's, conspiracy.com. Randy and Ken, welcome to 12 Geniuses. We're going to start with you, Ken. Would you give us a definition for what a servant leader is? Well, a servant leader is somebody who really is there for their people, not for themselves. We talk about we rather than me. And a lot of times, Don, when, when I talk about servant leadership, people think I'm talking about the inmates running the prison or trying to please everybody or some religious movement. They don't realize there's two parts of servant leadership. The leadership part is about vision, direction, values, and goals, because leadership is about going somewhere. That's the responsibility of the hierarchy. Doesn't mean you don't involve your people and all, but if they don't know what they're being asked to do or what good behavior looks like, shame on you. But once that's clear, then you philosophically turn the pyramid upside down to the servant part of servant leadership. And now you work for your people. Your job is to help them win, help them accomplish their goals, help them live according to the vision and values. And what are some of the behaviors around uh, somebody who is not a servant leader, somebody who is a little bit more self-interested? Well, they think all the brains are in their office, don't they, Randy? <laughs> yeah, they do. I was actually working with a client yesterday, Don, and on servant leadership, and I had them brainstorm, and I wrote down on a whiteboard, what are the behaviors of a leader who is there to be served rather than to serve others? You get things like, you know, self-serving leaders are micromanagers, right? They, they take the credit instead of giving the credit to their team. They're controlling. They don't share information. They, they use people, you know, to accomplish their end goals. People are just the, the pieces on the chessboard that they're maneuvering around. So unfortunately, it's, um, it's really easy to see self-serving leaders in the workplace, isn't it? We don't, we don't have a shortage of those. When you think about business results, what kind of superior business results do servant leaders achieve? And I'm, you know, you can talk about financials, you can talk about retention, but if any specifics around those types of business results we might see from servant leaders over self-interested leaders? Well, we believe it's a kind of a both and, you know, both you get the results and the great relationships and, and all because, uh, you know, servant leaders are there for their people and there for their performance. And, and those two go hand in hand. And you have a great way you kind of deal with that, Randy, in your sessions. Yeah, I'll, I'll often ask Don, you know, I'll, I'll write three words on a flip chart or a whiteboard, results and relationships. And I'll say, which of these three words is the most important to being a successful leader and having a 
thriving, successful organization. And, you know, inevitably you get about half the crowd that says results, right? It's like, we got to hit the numbers. That's why we're in business, right? We got to turn a profit. And then the other half says, well, I think it's relationships, right? Because if we don't have good relationships with our people, we're not going to be able to achieve results. And then there's always a few folks who say, yeah, I, I think Randy's messing with me here, right? I think the most important word is and. And I say, yes, it's the power of and, right? Servant leaders understand they have to balance both results and relationships. If we, if we neglect results, we're not serving the organization, right? Leaders are organizational stewards. We have to look out for the best interests of the organization. And if we neglect relationships, we're doing a disservice to our people because leaders are also the stewards of their people's health and well-being on the job. I've, I've started to look at leadership as leaders are a lot like environmental curators. You know, we're, we're like, we have to curate the environment that allow people to grow and be healthy and successful. And if we can do that, then they're going to achieve the results, which are going to meet the goals of the organization. So it's a win-win both ways. Your expertise, Randy, well, one of the areas of expertise that you have is within trust. And that's foundational or fundamental to being a servant leader, I'm sure. Can you talk about what's possible when leaders do an effective job of building trust? So that's the first part of the question, and we'll get to how you build trust. But talk about what's possible. Well, the short and easy answer, Don, is like everything is possible, right? Like we like to say, you know, trust is sort of like oxygen. You don't realize how much you need it until you don't have any, right? We, you sort of take it for granted. And the same is true with trust. You know, it is the absolute, it's the lifeblood of relationships and organizations. And when leaders have the trust of their people, then they're able to execute change. They're able to implement their strategies, their goals. They're able to move people forward, right? Because they're saying, I have trust and confidence in our leaders who are taking us in this direction. I pledge my commitment, my loyalty, my support to them. Whereas if you don't have the trust of your people, it's like pulling teeth, right? You're constantly trying to drag people along against their will, and that doesn't work for the leaders or the team members. People ask, you know, what organizations do you know that really combine servant leadership and trust and go to the, and get results and great relationships? Only the best ones, you know? Uh, whether it's Southwest Airlines in the airline business, Starbucks in that uh, business, uh, Wegmans in the grocery business, Disney in entertainment, you know, uh, uh, Chick-fil-A in the fast foods. They all have a servant leadership trust uh, environment with, with their people and their people stay with them. They don't have to get the turnover and all those other kinds of things. The organizations that you mentioned, Ken, are huge organizations. So obviously there's a process or a system or a culture that's created. So how did that originally get created within those organizations? It always starts with the vision, direction, values, and goals. They start there because that's that's the framework. One of our simple truths is that, you know, great organizations, great leaders set boundaries, you know. A lot of people say, well, boundaries, that's about control. No. We love the, the saying of a friend of ours, Alan Randolph, 
said is a, a river without banks is a large puddle, you know, and so the, the, the framework is the vision, values, and direction. That gets the thing going, right, Randy? Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the other simple truths, Don, that we talk about, we borrowed from our friend Rick Warren, you know, the opening line in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, the first sentence is, it's not about you, right? Servant leaders, it's not about you. It's about the people you serve. But although it's not about you as the servant leader, it does start with you. It starts with you. It starts with the leader uh, because you set the tone. You know, it's like, uh, I like to use the analogy. I ask leaders, are you a thermostat leader or a thermometer leader? And I don't know if you've ever heard that analogy before, but what is a thermometer? A thermometer just measures the temperature in the room, right? It's just a reflection of the condition within the room. Whereas the thermostat, that sets the temperature, right? That controls the environment. It regulates the environment. That's what we as leaders need to be. We need to be thermostat leaders, setting the culture, the tone, and not just being a mere reflection of what's going on. I want to get back to trust for a moment because I found what you wrote in the book really compelling. Uh, trust is not just telling the truth or not created by telling the truth. And so you have this model, this ABCD model. I wonder if you could walk us through that and talk about why all of these components are important. Yeah, all the research points to four core elements being present in trust. So whenever you have a relationship of trust, you have some degree of these four elements. And the first is your ability, which is about competence. Do you demonstrate competence in what you do? The B stands for believable. Are you a person of integrity? Do you act with integrity? C stands for connected. Do you demonstrate care and concern about people? That's the relationship component, right? And then D stands for dependable. Do you honor your commitments? A fundamental truth about trust is that trust is based on perceptions. We all perceive the trustworthiness of other people based on the behaviors that they use. So at the very root of trust, it's an interpersonal dynamic based on the behaviors we use. And once you learn those four elements of trust, able, believable, connected, and dependable, you can start to intuitively connect. Where is trust maybe a little low in this relationship? Which element do I need to dial up? you know, to improve the level of trust. And it's a really helpful framework for putting language to trust, right? Every language starts with an alphabet. That's the alphabet of trust, the ABCDs of trust. So what I find so interesting about that is it's it's not three of the four. It's four of the four. Exactly. And I, I, I worked for a leader one time, incredibly capable, believable, connected, showed up to meetings eight minutes late, 10 minutes late, you know, would promise things and, and miss the deadline. And, and so, you know, he was a trustworthy person. He wanted to be trustworthy, right? but he just wasn't dependable. And, it, right. and it's, it's, it's all four of those things. And, and when you understand that, then you could have a conversation with that person about the behaviors of dependability, right? Like I'm struggling with you meeting deadlines or I'm struggling with you not showing up on time for meetings. That is so much more manageable as a leader than saying, hey, Don, I just I, I can't trust you to keep your commitments. Right. That like sets off the alarm bells with someone. 
One of the keys, Don, here is that we think that this is a two-way uh, system, you know, is that, that you really sort of, you, you don't constantly, Randy and I say, you don't do theories to people, you do them with them. And so if you have the ABCD, you need to share that with your group. I want to create a trusting team here, and here's the elements and, and all, and I need your feedback and how well I'm doing and what, how are you doing? Where, where do we need to work on and all? And uh, that you're, you have to be willing to be vulnerable with your, your people. And they won't say, why are you the leader? You know, I mean, Colleen Barrett, who I wrote a book with Southwest Airlines has a wonderful saying. She said, people admire your skills, but they love your vulnerability because that means that they can play a part and, and it's, it really is a team. It's not about you. One of the things that you talk about early on in the book, Ken, is goal setting. And how do you set goals for positions that are difficult to measure? I've run sales and marketing organizations in the past. That's easy. Leads generated and uh, close ratio and average deal size. You know, it's, it's really easy to set goals for these types of positions. But how about some of the more difficult positions? Well, that's one where you work with your people. You say, you know, uh, your position is not always easy to set specific goals. Let's talk about uh, uh, what do you think you will have accomplished that you really feel good about in your job? You know, what what are the conditions, and how do we how do we uh, do something with with those and make it a make it a dialogue? You know, because uh, if you say mm, I better you know set goals for them, no, do it with them and make sure that you both understand what good behavior looks like, because you should be able to come up with that. Yeah, that, that requires a leader who is really paying attention and, and who's not lazy. I've worked for organizations where they say, bring your goals to the meeting. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, what should I be focusing on here? But, you know, what you're really talking about is a leader who's engaged in and, and collaborating with the individual. Yeah. And it's key that you don't want tons of goals. You want three to five you know, and uh, they they should make a difference. And you also uh, need to uh, be able to change your goals. You know, Gary Ridge, president of WD-40, they have a quarterly meeting uh, with each of their direct reports. Uh, and the first thing they do is the direct report, you know, brings in a report card and has their goals that they said at the beginning of the quarter and gives themselves an A, a B, a C, and there's no Ds or Fs. And the job of the manager is agree or disagree. We're not, Randy and I are not big uh, fans of these performance review systems where you're filling out forms on your people. Because if you look at managing people's performance, performance planning, day-to-day -day coaching, performance evaluation, you ask people, where do you spend most of the time? They always say evaluation because they're filling out those forms. No, let your people fill out the form. <laughs> and you agree or disagree uh, with them. And your job is to help them get an A. I always used to give the final exam at the beginning of my classes when I was a college professor and the rest of the faculty say, what are you doing? I said, I'm confused. You say, I acted. Well, I suppose to teach these kids you are, but don't give them the questions in the final. And I'd say, not only am I going to give them the questions in the final, what do you think I'm going to do all semester? I'm going to teach them the answers. So when they get to the final exam, they get A. Life's about getting an A. It's not some stupid normal distribution curve. I always say to people, how many of you go out and hire losers? What do you mean? I said, well, why are you sorting people out so some people have to lose, you know? And why wouldn't you want everybody to win? So one of the things in the book you, you wrote is 
servant leaders don't command people to obey, they invite people to follow. And I wonder if you could just comment on how you balance between collaboration and expedience, if, if you kind of understand what I'm asking. I think a lot of it has to go to diagnosing the competence and the commitment of your people within their jobs, right? And the various tasks within their jobs. Uh, and that's talking, that's getting into uh, SL2, our situational approach to, to effective leadership is you diagnose people based on their competence and commitment on a goal or task, and then you tailor your leadership style to move them along in their development. Because our goal as leaders is to get everybody from those enthusiastic beginners to being self-reliant achievers, right? So that you can delegate. And when you have people that are self-reliant achievers, that's where you know that autonomy comes in and you're letting them run with it, where, whereas when they're in that beginning and learning stage, you're much more involved. It gets more to the expedience side, right? Like you're giving more direction and support on achieving the goal. So what, what would you add to that, Ken? Well, I, what I really like is the simple truth is that servant leaders use different strokes for different folks. But the following simple truth is you not only use different strokes for different folks, but different strokes for the same folks on different parts of their job, because somebody might be very good in finance and you can delegate that to them. They might even know more about that than you, but in the people aspect, they might need some coaching and work. So you use different styles for different parts of, of their job, but you do that together with them. You don't do it to them. We know that servant leaders value and enjoy and love getting feedback. And Randy, I'm wondering if there's a key to building enough trust in order to get real useful feedback from uh, a leader's team. One of our simple truths is uh, trust requires risk. And leaders, it's your job to go first in extending trust. Someone has to first extend trust in order for trust to begin to grow. If no one ever extends trust, then you're just at a stalemate, right? You're, you're, you're uh, bumping heads. Uh, but if leaders can first extend trust and then give their people the freedom to give feedback, to share their ideas, and then most importantly, respond favorably, right, in a, in a positive sort of way, then that starts that, that reciprocal cycle of trust because it's a, it's a process of reciprocity between two people. I would imagine that extending vulnerability or showing vulnerability by the leader is one of the ways in which you can extend that trust. Absolutely. Ken, you want to share one of your favorite stories from Colleen Barrett? Yes. Uh, I wrote a book with Colleen when she took over presidency after Herb Keller stepped down. And one of her favorite sayings is that people admire your skills, but they love your vulnerability. And if, if you are vulnerable with your people, rather than them saying, why is that person the leader? They say, wow, this is going to be fun because we can play a part, you know, because one plus one is a lot greater than, than two when you're really working with a servant leader. When you recognize people for positive behaviors, that really builds trust. And I'm imagining that you, Randy, would agree with that statement. So you could, could you talk a little bit about best practices for providing recognition that does help to enhance trust and help people grow in the, in the right way? 
I'm going to actually let Ken respond to this one because it really gets at the heart of what Ken has been teaching for over 40 years. So Ken, what tell, tell us what you think about recognition because- Well, I, I often say uh, people took everything away from me that I've taught for over 40 years. What would I hold on to? It's the second secret of the one minute manager, which is the key to creating great organizations is to catch people doing things right and to accent the positive. Because so often people think when you come around, they're gonna be caught doing things wrong. And when they see that you wander around there and you're really on top of things and you're sort of saying, wow, this looks like it's going in the right direction. They are also open for your feedback when you say, gee, I look at this area, we're not moving along quite as well as we thought. How could I help? What do you think, you know? And so it really gets that whole team philosophy. Ken, I wonder if you can comment on a servant leader who's in an organization where pro-social behavior isn't rewarded. What, what advice would you give to somebody who's in that situation? Well, first of all, don't stop doing it with your group, you know, because if you uh, do the kind of things we're talking about, you're going to have not only great performance, but great results and let people look at that and say, gee, I've been watching, what do you do? And you can start to share with them. And the other thing is people say, how do you give feedback up the hierarchy, you know, to teach people about things? Well, first of all, you have to develop a, a relationship with, with the hierarchy. I remember uh, one of the business schools I was in, the dean wrote a lot about participative management, but didn't operate that way. And faculty would go in and tell him what he was doing wrong, and he'd throw him out of the office. And so I agree with the faculty assessment, but I realized I had to get a relationship with him. So I saw him in the hallway and I said, George, you've done a lot of writing and I'm just getting going, which I was. Would you be willing to look at some of the things I'm writing and give me some feedback? Oh, sure, Ken, you know, and there he had flip charts and all. And we had several uh, meetings on my uh, writing and finally second or third meeting, he said, Ken, what do you think we should do with these jerks we have in the organization? The key word is we, you know, because now he saw me on the team and I could, uh, I could really, as Randy's saying, I could give him some feedback and all because I had something to draw out of my trust bank account. What about a mid-level leader who works for an organization that doesn't necessarily have a compelling vision? purpose and picture of the future and values, what advice would you give to them? Well, one of the things they could do is uh, is share it with key people to say, you know, I just was at this workshop and talked about the, the power of vision and the fact that, you know, Southwest Airlines and uh, Starbucks and Wegmans and the grocery business and just, you know, everybody knows what business they're in, what good, good what, you know, what the picture of the future is and what their values are. What do you think about maybe we start working on that? You don't come in and sort of say, you know, you guys, you're idiots. You say, you know, I, I was just uh, reading about this or studying about this. Do you think this applies to us? Do you think, think we could do that? And if you feel like these principles and ideas resonate with you, and this is the way you operate as a leader, but yet you're in an organization that doesn't share that same philosophy, you can still be the change you want to see in the world. There's nothing preventing you from implementing this in your personal leadership approach, right? With your team, 
right? You be the shining light in your organization so that all the other leaders look around and they're looking at you and saying, wow, I'm, something's going right there, right? They're crushing it. They're hitting their numbers. They're serving customers. They're getting great ratings. What's going on there, right? A number of years ago, I worked with a, an employee who was leery and was just not somebody who trusted easily. How, what advice would you give to a leader who has an employee like that? How do you build trust when somebody is very skeptical and very leery? Yeah, boy, that, that's a tough one. A couple of things come to mind. One is be the role model of what trusting behavior looks like. So just because someone else has a low propensity to trust doesn't mean that you should not extend trust to them, right? Uh, show them what it looks like to extend trust to other people. And um, we talked a bit earlier about the ABCD framework, right, of, of putting language around trust. Share that. You know, start using a common language because when you have a model to reference, it sort of depersonalizes the topic of trust, right? It, it kind of puts it in an objective framework rather than a subjective feeling between folks. And so you could have a conversation with that person about how they could extend trust with you based on these ABCDs, able, believable, connected, dependable, and engage them in taking baby steps, right? I understand that it may be a little risky for you. You know, maybe you've been burned in the past, right? And and that prevents you from extending trust to others. But I want to share with you that I'm willing to take that risk with you. And I and I want you to know you can take that risk with me and I'll do everything in my power to be worthy of your trust. And so you know, it's it's hard. It requires some emotional courage, right, to have conversations like that. But uh, like Ken said earlier, we don't go around trying to intentionally hire losers, right? We hire winners or potential winners. So if we brought this person on our team, we obviously see they've got a lot to contribute. Let's see what we can do to help them be the best version of themselves. How do you repair trust when it is compromised. Yeah, that that's another challenging circumstance. Uh, it points to a myth about trust. We've all heard the saying, trust takes forever to build and just a, a moment to break, right? That's really only true in the most egregious betrayals of trust, right? The vast majority of the time, it's these little micro erosions in our trust bank account with people that lower trust. Uh, but regardless, um, I advocate a three-step process for getting trust back on track. The first is you have to acknowledge, right, that you have a low trust situation. We've learned that from the 12-step recovery movements, right? If you don't acknowledge you have a problem, you can't really deal with it. So first acknowledge and assess which of those four elements of trust, able, believable, connected, or dependable, did I erode, right? That gives you a, a, a way to narrow in on the specific behaviors you need to address with that person. The second step is to apologize. And um, there's nothing that restores trust quicker than owning up 
to your mistake, right? And then the third step is to act. You have to act differently. You have to act in ways that rebuild trust because you know you can apologize till the cows come home, but if you don't change your behavior, it's not going to make a difference. So Ken actually wrote a book, uh, The One Minute Apology. What would you add, Ken, to some of the nuances of, a, of an effective apology? Well, we thought that was important. We call it the fourth secret of the one-minute manager, you know, because the reality is that we, we all aren't perfect, and your people already know that. And if you're willing to admit that and be vulnerable, as I was sharing earlier, then they admire that rather than put it down, and they realize that they can be vulnerable too. Ken, what advice do you have for someone who works for a self-interested leader? Well, first, you have to develop a relationship with, with them, as I said. And, and if you do that, then you can sort of say, you know, do you mind if I share with you some observations? Because always ask permission uh, to give somebody feedback, particularly up the hierarchy. And if they say, yeah, I really like to hear that. Well, you know, I have a lot of respect for you in these areas. This is one that I think you might want to take a look at, you, you know, can we talk about it, you know, and, uh, and just, just involve them, but always ask permission. Don't just storm in and start, you know, flailing. One of the reasons why I started 12 Geniuses is because I just saw so many changes to the way that we're living and working, technology changes, social trends, social changes. And I think that leaders are in a really critical position right now in society uh, to enable their people to make the changes necessary to so they can thrive into the future. So they remain relevant. And I know that one of the parts of the book is leading through change. And I wonder if you could both comment on what are the best ways to convince people or to lead people to make the changes that are necessary for them to continue to flourish, for their careers to be um, successful going forward. Yeah, one of your referencing our simple truth that says, those who plan the battle rarely battle the plan. And it's getting to the point of high involvement in a change process. Involve your people in creating the plan for change. People who are involved have much more ownership over the, the change initiative, right? And it may not always be possible to, not everyone has a vote, right, when it comes to organizational change. It's not something we typically put out to vote to the entire organization. But everyone can have a voice. So even if they don't have a vote, give them a voice, you know, involve them in soliciting input and getting feedback on your change plans. And makes me think, Ken, of, you know, the natural stages of concern that people go through when they're faced with a change, right? And how leaders can address that. Yes, and, and there's certain concerns that, that people have, you know, their biggest concern is what am I gonna have to give up? You know, and so they're, they're holding there, you know, and, and uh, you know, so that, uh, but you wanna find out what their concerns are and, and, uh, and deal with them, you know, as, as much as you, as you can, because uh, again, if, if they think uh, that you care about them and their concerns and all, and you're not gonna lay this thing on them and all, 
it makes such a such a difference. Yeah, and people people go through a predictable sequence of concerns when they're faced with a change. You know, the first one is just information concerns, right? Like, what is this? What is the change? Uh, what's the timeline? You know, why do we need to change? And then they quickly move into personal concerns. Well, how does that impact me? Right? Am I going to win? Am I going to lose? Is it going to change my job? Will I get training to do, you know, the new process or whatever it may be? And then, um, then they quickly move. Once you can address those and resolve those, then they move into a stage of concern about wondering about implementation, right? How's this going to work, right? Do, like, is there a plan? Is there a timeline? Like, do we have milestone dates? Uh, so if we can address people's questions and stages of concern along the way, it goes a whole lot easier to implementing change, you know, within an organization. Real quickly, Randy, working from home and remote work has been happening for decades. But for a lot of leaders, this is their, the last two years have been their first experience with it. And I wonder if you have any recommendations for how to build trust in a re remote work environment. Yeah, I do. The principles remain the same, but the application needs to flex and change for the environment, right? So uh, the big one is I think leaders have to be much more intentional about fostering trust, right? We, we no longer have the, the convenience of bumping into each other and in between meetings, right? In the hallway conversations, we're not lingering in the meeting room after a meeting's done and chit-chatting and building that personal rapport. Um, uh, you can't just stand up and walk to your colleague's office, right? And do the drive-by drop-in meeting. You have to build in ways to do that in a hybrid or virtual environment, right? You have to intentionally set up meeting times for just check-ins. Um, we like to call them water cooler times, right? Like set up a, a, a weekly Zoom water cooler time, right? Where people can come and hang out for 10, 15 minutes and shoot the breeze or, or intentionally manage the schedule of your meetings, you know, to end, uh, like in our organization, we've started trying to do 45 to 50 minute meetings to give people sort of that 10 minute buffer before the next meeting starts or to linger a little bit in the room, you know, and chit chat. So Principles remain the same, but the way we implement them have to flex and change for the environment. Ken, you've been at this leadership thing for a long time. I'm wondering what the biggest change in leadership over the course of your career has been. I think the biggest change, and we ended up rewriting the one minute manager two years ago, Spencer and I, uh, calling it the new one minute manager, is that the, the leadership used to be a top down thing, even the one minute manager. The leader was the one who made sure the goals were. The leader decided who to praise and all. And now the biggest change to us is is the young people want side-by-side -side leadership. They don't want top-down leadership. They don't want your job. But they want you to know that they're there and they like their opinions heard and all. And that's a wonderful different phrase about leadership, side-by-side -side rather than top-down. 
if someone's inspired by the conversation and wants to become a servant leader, where should they start? Asking yourself, you know, am I here to serve or be served? I think that's the defining question that every leader has to ask and answer for themselves. Am I here to serve or be served? And if your answer is, I'm here to serve others, well, then there's lots of tools and resources out there that can help you get started in doing that. And um, whether it's our book or, uh, you know, leading at a higher level, uh, which is sort of a Blanchard library on everything we've taught over the last 40 years, um, to Robert Greenleaf's, you know, seminal essay, Servant Leadership, that he wrote back in 1970, or Ken's book, Servant Leadership in Action. There's lots of resources, but you first have to look inside and ask yourself, am I here to serve or be served? Ken, I, I can't end this conversation without asking you about your father. Your father retired as a rear admiral in the U.S. Navy, and I wonder what he taught you about leadership growing up that, that really influenced and informed you. Well, he was always uh, giving me information on that. And I, you know, might have mentioned it when I won the president of the seventh grade uh, in uh, junior high school. I came home all pumped up and he said, Ken, you know, now your leadership training begins because now that you're president, don't use your position. Great leaders are great because people trust and respect them, not because they have power. And he said, it's a myth in the Navy uh, and the military, it's my way or the highway, sure, in battle. Somebody's got to call the shots. Uh, but if you act like you're a big deal with your people and all, they'll shoot you before the enemy. Uh, and, uh, so it's, uh, you know, it was really, he constantly pitched that leadership is not about you. It's, it's about the people you're serving. Ken, Randy, I could talk for hours with you about this topic and other topics. I really appreciate your time today and thank you for being geniuses. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses, and thank you again to The Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this episode. This is the final episode of season six of the show. We focused on the topic of leadership throughout the season, from Daniel Pink in episode one to Randy Conley and Ken Blanchard in episode 12. We had incredible guests throughout. Over the summer of 2022, we're going to shift gears. I'll be interviewing 12 futurists. The goal of these interviews is to help leaders become better visionaries for their organizations by learning how futurists think, gather information, and identify the trends shaping the way we live and work. Thank you to Jonathan J. Tony and the rest of our production team at GL Pro in London. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.